Welcome to our first episode of The Brief in 2020. I'm your host, Jonty Summers. Today, I'm going to be talking to Arun Sudaman, the CEO and editor-in-chief of The Homes Report. We're going to talk about the latest industry trends and catch up on their recent Provoke Mena event that they had this week. Arun, welcome. Good morning, John T. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. And, you know, here we are on a sunny day uh, by the lake in Media City, and you bring some, some, some international sun to us. How's, how was, how was uh, your uh, Provoke conference yesterday? I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't be there, but uh, every, all the feedback I've had has been absolutely great. We were very happy with it. I think the only issue was um, the absence of Hanover. But other than that, we were very happy with it. <laughs> I'm touched. Uh, it was it was an excellent turnout, actually. Um, the, the support from the industry here is, is gratifying. Um, and the conversations were varied uh, and obviously as in line with our new brand, hopefully provocative. Uh, you know, a couple of sessions in particular, I thought, um, hopefully challenged the industry here a little bit, you know, around youth expectations of brands. Yeah. Uh, and also in terms of what uh, what brands can be doing in terms of of solving social issues and and maybe making purpose real uh, as opposed to just words. You do this, you know, round the world in different in different geographies. Do you notice different conversations happening in this region versus, say, in in Asia or or in or in when you go to New York or, yeah. or London? Very much so. I mean, so the conversation, for example, around. Um, the, the youth and and their expectations of brands and, and the disconnect, I actually think is, is more advanced here than in, right. in, in, in other places in the world because it's such a young region. Yeah, we have a youth imperative here. Exactly. Mm. And it's a very... And, you know, the youth have, have kind of reshaped the information landscape um, to an extent here in a, in a way that is, is more significant, I would argue, than in other regions, right? Because... Uh, if you're in the US um, or the UK, for example, the the change in media cons- consumption and so on, you actually see across generations. But I think that change is more profound here. Uh, and with that comes differing expectations of companies. And then, of course, you have um, more in terms of, you know, youth activism here, for example, is, is a much bigger driver, I think, of change than it is in other parts of the world. Uh, and that also changes the environment in terms of how brands can, and companies are, are expected to proceed. So that's one example of how it's different here. Another example, um, the final session uh, at yesterday's conference was on purpose and what brands are doing uh, in terms of uh, turning their values into action. And actually, I felt that conversation maybe was was um, at a more nascent stage here than it is in other parts of the world. So the conversation here was much more around, well, why does it even matter? You know, what's the argument for... Uh, brands taking on social issues and and um, addressing those kinds of challenges, as opposed to just existing for the benefit of shareholders. That, that's interesting, I know, because uh, I mean, yes, I mean, ESG and environments, social and, and governments, governance uh, seems to be a hot topic, certainly on the on the on the on the corporate side, the business to business mm. side. So it's interesting that that might not have filtered through into discussions quite as quite as much. It certainly seems to be a hot topic. It's a very hot topic. I mean, I, I was in uh, the World Economic Forum earlier this month in Davos, and um, you know, all the talk there is, is about stakeholder capitalism. Um, and last year, the, the Business Roundtable in the U.S. came out with a statement. So they represent, I think, 
it's at least 100 uh, of the the top companies in the US, their CEOs are members. They came out with a statement last year saying that um, business is is no longer uh, operates for the benefit of just shareholders, but it has to operate for the benefit of all stakeholders equally, customers, employees. Um, suppliers and communities that's the that's a kind become a, a very recurring motif I think in terms of uh, corporate responsibility and corporate communication um, but I think that's a conversation that is still playing out here yeah. if, if I'm being honest with you yeah yeah so I mean da- Davos to Dubai I mean that's uh, that must be quite a difficult one to pack for if you're coming back <laughs> in did you did you go back to Hong Kong on the uh, I, oh the, yeah yeah right, I, I definitely went but that's an impossible one Fine. to pack for because okay. you know Davos you need the snow boots uh, the big coat all the winter clothes which I only wear once a year uh, now and um, obviously, Dubai is a, a, a much easier. Oh, I don't know. It's pretty situation. cold here at the moment. So I, I even wore a puffer jacket to the office. I mean, yesterday. for for me coming from Hong Kong, it is a little bit chilly. Yeah. I, I I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So this 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 is will, will come as. Um, uh, this, I'm sure the, our UK listeners will love hearing all of this. Yeah, of course. We like to make them like to make them envious. Perhaps we could have a, 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 a quick zoom out. I mean, so mm. so provoke formerly the Homes Report. Yeah. Yeah. What's tell, tell us about you know what the why of that? Obviously, Homes Report is you know yeah. quite an established name. So yeah. Why why the need to change? Sure, it's it's not a decision we took lightly. You know, the Homes Report is a well-established brand. So this is our twentieth anniversary this year. Um, and it's the 10th anniversary uh, in May of me coming on board as well. Uh, we had been talking about it for, for a number of years. In fact, if you go back as far back as 2010, when I joined the company, one of the first conversations I had with Paul Holmes um, was around changing the name of the company. Because even then we thought it, it, it's, you know, the Holmes Report is a little bit of an old school name um, to, to begin with. I've always thought it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and then, of course, as we've grown the business, you know, when I joined, it's really just uh, two people. Now we're, you know, more than 10. Uh, and in particular, our, edit- our editorial team has grown globally. Mm. And so it's it's not a business that just reflects uh, the views of one person, uh, of Paul Holmes, for example. And so he was quite keen um, to make that change. And then in terms of the Provoke name, we, we had actually adopted that name in 2016 for our global summit. And... I wish I could tell you exactly how it happened, but I can't remember. All I can remember is that we, once we started talking about the word provoke, there was very little discussion. We felt it was perfect for us, um, for the event, in that we wanted to provoke conversations, action, behavioral change, for the industry, for the same reasons. For us as a company, we ask our people to provoke in terms of the, the editorial we deliver. That's always really, uh, I, I would argue, it's our core value. Um, so then once we had that name for the event, it became very easy to see what we would change the company name to. And then it was just a question of when. And I don't know if you've ever rebranded. Um, so we just felt we couldn't keep putting it off forever. And so we decided on January of 2020. And... Um, in the manner of journalists everywhere, we did it on January 31st. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like a deadline about to be missed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you, I mean, you've got quite an interesting setup because you're, you're, the, 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 the team is quite, is, is geographically very widely spread. Mm. You don't have a, it doesn't seem like there's an obvious nucleus for no. operations. No, no, that's... Do any part- of you live in the same city? 
Uh, yeah, well, Paul and Maya do. Paul, they're both in London. Right. Um, although Paul spends a lot of his time in New York. Right. Um, and we have a couple of people in New York. Who, so we do have more than one person there. We actually have a couple of people in Hong Kong. We have people in San Francisco as well. Um, we have a uh, correspondent in Japan. Um, but nobody in the Middle East. Not yet. Not yet. An but, obvious omission, you know, surely. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's becoming more and more obvious, right. I think. So it's something we will, we will look to address, I think, in the near term. Um, it's partly by design, the fact that we don't have a, a hub, you know, a nucleus. We're a small company. We have always felt the value that we can bring is on a global basis. Um, it's what interests us as a company as well. We've never wanted to just cover one market. And we see public relations as a global industry and mm. um, to do that as a small company though is difficult you do need people around the world um, and it means we rely heavily on technology you know we don't really have offices um, we all work either at home or in in shared um, spaces we use a lot of technological tech platforms let's say slack and so on to keep us connected um, it's the kind of thing we could do now we, I, d I doubt we would have been able to do it 15 years ago so we're lucky um, in that respect, you know, we don't have print. So that's re that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. we're, we're fully digital, um, but I think it's really important that that to reflect the global industry, you can't be too focused on, in particular, the U.S. because that is still the big market. Mm -hmm. You know, it's forty forty five percent of the global PR industry. It's a very big market for us. We just have, always have to be conscious that it doesn't dominate too much airtime. So. That's also part of the reason why we ensure we have people, you know, outside the U.S. really. And, and you live in Hong Kong. Yeah. Why do you live in Hong Kong rather than in um, the U.S.? Which yeah, is so, it's, well, it's two reasons. I mean, one is personal. I'm from Hong Kong. So that's, you know, I've, I, I, my family's been there for almost 40 years. It's where I grew up. It's home for me. Um, I'd been in the U.K. for nine years and wanted to go home, frankly. So that's the personal side of it. On, on the more business side of things, we knew we needed someone in Asia. As, as we'd been growing, you know, Asia was the next step. We had people in the US and in Europe. Um, and we just felt, I, I know the Asian market really well. I'd, I'd covered it for several years before moving to the UK. Um, so it was really a question of, do we f try and find someone in Asia or perhaps I'll go back to Asia and handle it? And I already have all the relationships there. Um, so it, it's just easier for us as a company for me to, for me to do it, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, it makes life more challenging in other respects. You know, managing a global team from Hong Kong with time zones and all the rest of it is not easy. Um, but for the most part, I think it's worked quite well. And it's certainly helped us grow our Asia, Asia business. Mm -hmm. I mean, quite significantly since I've moved back. And Hong Kong's obviously uh, been a very... A very interesting place to live in the last in the last year. I, I, I mean, how how do you yeah. see? I mean, as a, as a kind of from a public relations and communications perspective, how 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 do you judge that situation? It's been without getting arrested. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I've already said uh, several things that uh, could land me in hot water at some point. So I, I've stopped worrying about that kind of thing. And honestly, there are journalists in Hong Kong who are far more fearless than I have been. And I think um, to worry about what you're saying, you know, does them a disservice. Um, so I, I don't really, I don't, I don't really have too many concerns about, uh, but being critical and just being honest. Um, it's been fascinating to observe. I mean, really, 
you know, I moved back to Hong Kong in 2017. First couple of years were quiet and then everything just erupted mm. last year. Um, there has been a uh, profound breakdown of trust between the government and the people of Hong Kong. Uh, and it's difficult to um, underplay the, uh, the, the government's um, performance in this regard. You know, they have not met the expectations of their constituents, uh, I would argue. And, and you would find many, uh, most people in Hong Kong, I think, would agree with that statement. Um, and that has led to a huge amount of unrest in Hong Kong. It's been coming for many years. Um, it really erupted last year because of the uh, uh, a specific law that the Hong Kong government was trying to push through uh, against the wishes of the public. But it's also a reflection of the way that Hong Kong's freedoms have eroded um, under uh, under the you know twenty years of, of Chinese rule. It's a reflection of the way that the the situation in Hong Kong has changed. Um, lifestyles have changed. The idea that the city is, you know, a, a special place, which, you know, for, for most of my life there it has been, the idea that that has changed has left people in Hong Kong feeling very uneasy, um, very dissatisfied, and demanding far greater accountability from their leadership, mm. um, to the extent that many, of course, um, want a more democratic system. Um, so that kind of explains the protests last year. Uh, the... Um, the incredible unpopularity of the government, you know, our chief executive, Carrie Lam, her approval ratings are in the single digits. Um, so it's really one of the most unpopular in the world, if not the most unpopular. And then added to that, you have the coronavirus situation, yeah. which has um, become very serious over the last couple of months. And that's another example of, of really poor government uh, communication um, and, and just really poor government handling Mm. of the crisis and mm. you know all it's done is um it's just kind of reinforced the uh, the loss of faith that the hong kong public has in its institutions and in its leadership yeah fascinating if we could perhaps look to more let's look look more globally and if you look look at back back at 2019 i mean for you what stand out stand out stories of the year what kind of Hong Kong aside, what what, <laughs> what what grabbed your attention and said, yeah, that is amazing? Yeah, well, it's interesting because actually the, our biggest story last year, I know you said Hong Kong aside, our biggest story last year was, and in fact, I think it is the biggest story we've ever posted. And that was the um, the story about the Hong Kong government trying to hire a PR agency. Yes. And uh, going out to eight agencies. And failing. Failing, yeah. Mm. And all eight agencies turning them down. And that story went global, you know, the BBC picked it up and the Guardian picked it up and it's rare, it's very rare and you'll know this, it's very rare to be in a situation where um, certainly covering the public relations industry where you have a story that makes the front pages yeah. uh, you know, and it's, it's almost like lightning striking the last time I, I remember it happening was and you'll know this one well as too, it was Bell Pottinger um, but that was of course 2017 um, so that was a, a very big story of course, that was really focused on Hong Kong, quite a specific situation. Um, in terms of uh, industry stories, uh, I would say there's a couple of things that were interesting. The first is this kind of ongoing trend towards agency consolidation yeah. that we're seeing. And that, I think, really um, took shape in 2019 in a way that we had expected in previous years, but we hadn't actually 
seen it become as real as it as it had done last year. Um, the, you know, in terms of publicly held agencies, there was a lot of activity in terms of mergers, and I expect we'll see that continue this year. Um, the other big story I think from last year was the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but the um, Bayer Monsanto stakeholder mapping affair in France, um, which saw Bayer suspend its agency, Fleischmann-Hillard, quite publicly um, for some fairly mundane stakeholder mapping that was carried out a few years ago, but um, was reported in one of the French newspapers as you know a big scandal. As it turns out, actually, that Fleischmann has has effectively been cleared of any, of any serious wrongdoing. Um, but it's a good example of the expectations um, that people have in terms of their data. It's a good example of how public relations is still the bad guy and an easy target in uh, the national media, uh, particularly in, I would say, particularly in continental European countries. Um, it's a good example of how the Bayer acquisition of Monsanto is changing the culture mm. of both companies. Uh, and it's probably a cautionary tale for agencies that find themselves on the wrong side of this kind of thing. You know, Fleischmann, I don't think, did much wrong here, but still ended up being suspended and and um, wasn't very helpful for them, I would argue. No, no. And what, just in terms of, in terms of trends that you are seeing globally, mm. uh, what... what you know, we've talked consolidation. How else is the industry changing? Um, so cons consolidation obviously is one um, very interesting trend, but it really, I think, uh, focuses on publicly held agencies. Uh, if we look beyond that, uh, one of the things we're seeing is the rise of mid-size agencies, often independent, becoming increasingly global, um, being able to build global networks without the kind of flags on the map approach, which had marked global agency expansion, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the, the wave of expansion that happened then, that's changed significantly. And that's interesting because it gives uh, clients, customers in, in markets in Asia Pacific, regions like this, Latin America, it gives them options other than the big global players and often for the first time. So that's interesting. And then what we're also seeing at the same time is the rise of strong, um, stronger, I'd say, domestic players, like genuine alternatives to the big networks. You know, for, for most of my career covering the Asia-Pacific PR industry, for example, the, the phrase was always, you know, you, if you're um, a big client, you'd never get fired for hiring, you know, a big PR agency. Mm. That's changed. Yeah. That's really changed. And I expect we'll see that continue to change in many more local markets as we see both um, independent networks taking shape around the world, but also stronger domestic players who don't just compete on price, but are actually providing you know, a level of insight uh, and a level of, of service quality that in many cases is better than, than the big networks. And, and just picking up on that, the point you made about uh, about the rise of independence. What, 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 why do you why do you think? Well, two questions. One, you know, what is what is behind the, the rise of an independent? And mm. I, I guess the second question for for that, if you're a network, what, what do you need to do to counter that? If that is a trend, yeah. So I think the the biggest issue that has faced networks is the fact that they're publicly held. Frankly, um, I. 
after covering this industry for f- more than 15 years, I've come to the view that professional service firms are better off being independent because when they're publicly held, they tend to operate for the benefit of shareholders. And I think professional service firms need to operate for the benefit primarily of their clients and their people. And mm, when what we've seen from independent firms is they are far more willing to invest ahead of the curve. They're more agile. They're more flexible. They're not concerned about their monthly profit margin in the way that a publicly held agency is. Now, the benefit of a publicly held agency is they have capital. But access to capital is not the advantage it once was. Mm. You know, we've seen independence from private equity, even just from, from bank loans being able to finance acquisitions. And in fact, independent firms are now out acquiring publicly held firms. Um, so there's, there's a, those are the reasons in terms of the model, I think. You know, the, the fact that independent firms are focused on clients and people and their services, um, I think just brings them far more in line with what clients want. Mm. Uh, it means they can invest. So for networks, you know, for them to compete better with independents, I think they need to focus on what they can do that independents can't. So the obvious one is bring their global network, the power of that global network to bear. Um, and then, of course, they need to invest more in the way that independents do. Um, so that's one interesting trend. Another one um, that I think is worth flagging, uh, also on the kind of agency-client relationship, is um, we're seeing increasing in-housing. Um, and we see that particularly in more mature markets. You know, uh, content marketing, for example, a lot of the digital work we see being pulled in-house. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, we see clients saying that they want um, agencies to provide more in terms of consultancy rather than just arms and legs because they can do the arms and legs work through their in-house headcount. Now that poses a significant challenge mm-hmm. for networks because they've grown in most On cases. On the back of doing arms and legs work. Exactly. You know, that's the model, right? That kind mm-hmm. of pyramid model around mm-hmm. the world. It's a big challenge for them. Um, what's, dri- what's driving that shift to in-house? Why do, why do cor- corporates want to control their comms more in-house? Is there more control? Is that what's driving it? Is it cost? I think it's both of those things. Mm. Yeah, I think it's control. I think it's cost. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think there's a, rea- there's a, there's a realisation on the client side that they don't actually need an agency to do all that kind of stuff necessarily. They can do that quite easily themselves. You know, at the same time, one of the trends that also plays to this you know, move towards in-housing is the rise of tech platforms that sell software as a service. Mm. Um, and so if you're a client, you don't necessarily need to pay an agency to handle, you know, all of your social media marketing. You can use one of these tech platforms and the way they're set up, you know, you're, you're buying, you know, freemium models, very easy, very user-friendly. You know, you get a dashboard. I think this actually poses a threat to the agency model as well. Agencies are still selling time right? These tech platforms are selling products. Mm. And that's, a, in some cases, that's an easier sell, I think, mm. for clients. Are you seeing, I mean, there's been some talk about how sort of management consultancies and, and, and the, you know, the, 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 the kind of account, accountancy firms are, um, you know, are, you know, their advisory services often increasingly including a comms element. Are you seeing much of that? 
A lot of talk. Um, what we've seen from the management consultancy so far is largely um, their acquisitions have been of advertising, digital, CRM-focused agencies. Yeah. Um, that's been the easiest area for them to make inroads because it fits quite well with their digital transformation projects. Mm. Now, when it comes to public relations, corporate communications, reputation crisis, certainly you can make the case that it's, it's quite a good fit for management consultancies mm. to make inroads in that space too. Haven't seen much of it so far. Certainly in terms of acquisitions, there's only really been one or two. Maybe that will start to happen more. I haven't really seen management consultancies rolling out services that directly compete with um, public relations agencies. I do question the fees and whether they are compelling enough for management consultancies. Um, for the management consultancies, they're kind of effectively moving downstream. Yeah, um, which is really a model that seems to work that well. Right, but I guess they can't move any further upstream. So this is just a way for them to try and control m more of that customer relationship. Mm. Um, and so for that reason, I think it is probably a looming threat rather than a particularly real one now, unless you've seen anything different. No, well, I mean, you, you certainly see, you certainly see, certainly in the Middle East, you certainly see at the at the Stratcoms level, you certainly see, you certainly have conversations that might involve a, you know, one of the big management consultancies, mm, right. and and sometimes you're going to you'll be bidding for work that includes you know a McKinsey and a, you know, a BCG and as as your competitor set. So mm. that's you know. You know, thought provoking. Yeah, it is. Although it makes me, as you as you point out, it makes me quite happy because it means we can put our fees up. <laughs> right. Well, there's a silver lining, I guess. <laughs> what? What? Um, you know, what? What is? What are you? What have? You, what plans have you got for the Middle East region over the coming year? Um, I think you know, broadly speaking, we want to cover the region better. Mm. Uh, we would like to do more here in terms of events as well. We've rolled out a new platform. Uh, called Next20, uh, which is a fairly straightforward idea. We just want to examine the state of the PR industry um, in various markets, sectors, verticals around the world. Um, it's Next20 because it uh, it's in line with our 20th anniversary. also gives us a way to look at the next 20 years of the industry's evolution. Um, and so hopefully that will involve uh, more activity in this part of the world, whether that's in specific local markets or looking at certain sectors and issues. Um, and then, of course, we'll be back with the, the, the big regional conference next year as well. I mean, in general, our goal is to do more on a local level. You know, you'll know this as well as me. Public relations is, is a local business. Um, it's nice to have the regional events. They're very useful. Um, but they are, are of limited utility, I've always thought, in some of these regions like Asia-Pacific, I would argue Middle East, North, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa as well. They're just far too big mm. for you to effectively um, examine from one event. Yeah. Right? You really have to get to the local level. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of our focus now. We've spent the last decade, I think, building out what I would say is a, is a global footprint and now what we need to do is is make that a bit more local. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we've certainly we've certainly noticed that. I mean, we've we've run a, our leadership Magilus for the last six seven years in Abu Dhabi, mm. but then last year in November we did one in, in Riyadh. Completely different flavor, right? Completely different, you know, energy focuses, topics of discussion. I mean, you know, yes, it's three hours flight away, and arguably on you know, it's in the same bit of land, but you know, completely different. And uh, I mean, it's it just speaks to the kind of. It's just lazy as, as well, isn't it? The mm. way that these regions are sometimes divided up doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense, you know. Well, as, but although, yes, as, as anybody who has to sell to a has to sell to a multinational corporate will know that uh, yeah. the Middle East does tend to be one big mass, right? And presumably Asia does as well. well yeah, and, I mean Africa. That's Africa, the one. That yes, there you go. Because <laughs> it's only got fifty-two countries. Yeah, many it, it is. Yeah. You know, the flight yeah. times are yeah, yeah. It's challenging. What, what what in your view? Should the PR should PR firms do better to to uh, to communicate their purpose and, and reputation? What what are they? What tricks are they missing? What do they not do well enough? I think in general the the PR industry hasn't done a particularly good job at um, explaining how it can be a force for good, um, and so we still see this trope of public relations as as dark arts. Mm. as bad actors, yeah. as kind of image laundering. I mean, the biggest <clears throat> PR story to permeate the consciousness of the general public, you'd have to argue, was, was Bell Pottinger. Didn't really paint the industry in the best light. Mm. Um, but I know, and you know, that the public relations industry does an incredible amount of work that brings corporations, governments, organizations more in line with public expectations you know, improves their behavior for the better. And I just think the industry has been far too reticent. And I understand why, in many cases, they don't want to be in the spotlight. And clients don't want their PR people to be the story. Um, but they have to figure that out. Because, unfortunately, the, the reputation of the industry um, is not helped, I think, by... This, this reticence and this kind of unwillingness to, to, to tell the industry's story. Um, you know, we, we always uh, do our best whenever there is a story about a, a PR agency you know, doing some sort of image laundering and all that kind of stuff. Usually you find out that what they're doing is, is real public relations work and, and you know, they're, they're properly advising a client as to how to behave better in line with, with public expectations. Um, that all seems to be lost in translation when it comes to how the mass media cover the, the PR industry. Um, so that, that would be my observation from a kind of general perspective. Do you, and, and I, I think Asia is where I think we've seen quite a bit of this. I mean, does, there's, there is a new breed of dark PR firm. I mean, we live in an age of disinformation as much yeah. as anything. I mean, how, how do you, and, and I think it was BuzzFeed, who actually we featured BuzzFeed in our, in our remap event last year, and it was interesting, their, their investigative uh, reporting on, but they they did a story last week on the dark PR firms of you know who, you know dis- spreading disinformation quite publicly dis- spreading disinformation yeah, on behalf of governments. Taiwan, yeah, Taiwan, one, Malaysia, right? Malaysia. There Malaysia. was a you know yeah. a, a, a guy there. Is that is that the, is that the new normal? Do you think, or will that is that you know is that just going to be a thing that'll evaporate a, away? I, I actually think it's very worrying because yeah. we live in this era now where truth. The truth is up for grabs yeah. in a way that it hasn't been in the past, which is which in itself is worrying, right? That you can have different versions of the truth. I mean, 
I grew up thinking there was only one version mm. of the truth, but now you can peddle uh, disinformation and mis- misinformation on such a kind of weaponized scale. Um, and yeah, it's attracted bad actors in terms of agencies that can, can you know, roll out these campaigns that have, bear no relation to facts. Um, you hope that the more credible uh, businesses and agencies steer clear of this stuff. Uh, but it is worrying because I've certainly seen in some Asian markets, China in particular, where it was referred to as black PR, uh, you still see a huge amount of activity mm. uh, in terms of agencies spreading uh, false accusations, false rumors, uh, just to cripple their rivals. Mm. Um, it makes you wonder whether some form of regulation is required. You know, it's a bigger conversation here. I've never been a huge fan of, of regulation of anything that involves the media. Um, but I just wonder whether we need to relook at that, given how easy it is to, to, to spread misinformation. Uh, and it looks like the tech platforms, certainly Facebook, have, have little appetite to clamp down on this stuff. Yeah. And I guess the, the question that many of our listeners will want to know is, you know, how do we win the uh, how do we win the agency of the year at the Sabres? Well, I mean, you know, uh, submit number one. Well, Hanover should know, really. They've won it um, in, in the we've won know, we've won like it three we've won times Ellen, in the sorry. last decade. I think we should definitely win it again. Obviously, <laughs> what 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 do you? I mean, what do you what do you look what do you look for? Um, how does the process work? Is it? Yeah. Is, it's not just you and Paul sitting together having a chin wag and arguing, is it? It's actually not that far off. Um, <laughs> there's a few more people involved now, so you know it's 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 the whole editorial it's team. A bigger argument, yeah. It's a bigger right, argument. Right. Um, agencies submit. You submit online, uh, and then you can also meet with us. And we often do these, you know, meetings where agencies will will spend anything from one to sometimes four hours talking us through everything they've done. I, I definitely prefer the one hour meetings. If you want to do the four hour meeting, get in touch with Paul. He's your man. Um, but really, it's, it gives us a chance to look under the hood. Uh, we've done so many of these meetings now, I think we get a good sense. It's not just the submission process, though. It's year-round. I think let us know what's happening year-round. You know, mm. we talk to everyone in the market, so we try and get a good picture of an agency's performance. And what we look for um, is, you know, growth and momentum and performance, the quality of people, uh, the quality of, of thinking, uh, intellectual leadership, uh, new products and then of course the quality of the work it's mm. very important and I, and and probably when all things are equal it's the quality of work that is the biggest differentiator Arun it's great to have you here uh, I think we could carry on talking for hours but we could yeah, yeah but yeah. Uh, but we, we'll we'll leave it there thank um, you and best of luck for 2020 we look yep. forward to seeing you and the provoke guys back here uh, later in the year thanks so much for having me best of luck to all of you it's been a pleasure Mepra's got a jam-packed 2020. We've got more events and programs than ever before. So if you're not a member yet, get in touch with the team to find out about the value of joining. Email us at community at mepra.org or go to mepra.org and register there. The next episode of The Brief is going to celebrate women in leadership uh, to coincide with International Women's Day. Uh, be sure not to miss it. Mm-hmm.